It's exciting to be able to come together on the Lord's Day morning, isn't it? The psalmist stated words like these in Psalm 119, verses 15 and 16. I will meditate in thy precepts and have respect unto thy ways. I will delight myself also in thy statutes. I will not forget thy word. Those encouraging and touching words from the ancient day, I will not forget thy word. May each of us be dedicated and devoted and also make that personal affirmation not to forget the word of God. As I look over the audience this morning, always, certainly as mentioned previously, we're thankful for the presence of each and every individual. And it's our trust that our time together will truly be in truth and in spirit as we worship the Heavenly Father and as we strive, in fact, to do exactly that which He would find acceptable and pleasing. It's never our desire for our worship to be vain, to be empty in any sense. As you well know, some two Sundays ago today, we began a series of lessons touching on elders and deacons. And as we've developed three lessons on the subject of elders, we did that, interesting enough, with a timing. It wasn't planned that way, but with a timing that coincided with uh, Gary Medley's name being put before us. I hope as we studied elders, it was an opportune time to be reminded of the great work of an elder, the placement of the job and the task that he has, and the tremendous service he can render to assist in the faithfulness of the church of our Lord. This morning, as you can see on the wall to my left, we're going to cast the spotlight on deacons today, specifically this morning. The role of deacon is one also addressed within the pages of God's holy word, and so I trust for the next few moments we will give our attention to that topic. Let's begin by developing some of the features like these. All of us would be so quick to say that the organization of the church of our Lord is of fundamental significance. In fact, we are not to tamper with that pattern. The pattern has been divided, it has been presented to you and to me through the pages of God's holy and inspired Word. Aren't we told in Hebrews 8 verses 5 and following, See thou make all things according to the pattern. Just as surely then as there's a pattern for the plan of salvation... There's a pattern with respect to the organization of the church. We thus must uphold it. And we've studied about elders, but that isn't all the Bible has to say about those men and the particular offices within the church of the Lord. Today, as we think about deacons, I hope we have found the lessons on elders to be encouraging and edifying. I would quickly say that many of those features that you and I found relative to the qualifications of elders really are expected of all of us. For instance, all of us should be not interested in filthy lucre. All of us should, of course, be interested in being dignified and serious. Now, there were some of those qualifications specific to an elder, like being the husband of one wife. Today, as we study about deacons... We also shall find some qualifications have been delivered from the very essence of God's being. And as you and I think about those qualifications and the other attributes of the deacon, I hope again that we can be encouraged to appreciate our deacons, to be thankful for their efforts and their work. And maybe we can leave today with a better appreciation of what the Bible has to say about deacons. As we turn to the next slide, it would seem to me one wise thing to do is to think with some care about the word deacon. How does the New Testament writers by inspiration use that term? Maybe that by itself speaks in a very critical fashion concerning the nature of what some today have found apparently problematic. 
Let me illustrate what I mean. The word deacon comes from an original word that is diakonos. And I've even spelled it there for you. That's, of course, the English presentation of that original Greek word. This word diakonos. You might immediately wonder, what does that word mean? First of all, you might note this. The word is used in two rather clear ways in the New Testament. We would do well to understand that distinction so that we would ne'er confuse the two. First of all, there is a sense in which that word is used in a very general fashion like this. The word means servant or helper. For instance, note these possibilities. In Matthew 22, verse 13, Jesus told a parable, and in that parable there was a king, and he gave orders to his diakonos, his servants, the servants to the king. You may remember that the particular statements, commandments given thus touched the orders from a superior to those that were his subjects. Look at another example in Mark 10, verse 43. We learn on that occasion about diakonos as we think about the nature of service one to another. Isn't it still true that the one that is the greatest among you shall be your diakonos, your servant? Encouraging all of us to have a mentality of service to others, never exalting ourselves in arrogance and pride, but we strive to be a diakonos, a service to the nature of what is the will of God. In John chapter 2, we notice verse number 5 and 6 in which Mary, the mother of Jesus, that was the Lord's first miracle, turning the water to wine, and it was she who told those diakonos, whatever he saith to you, do it. The servants on that occasion. We get the idea. It is entirely possible then for this word diakonos to be used in a general way as it relates to those that would be in service to God. So look at these examples. In Colossians 1 verse 7, Epaphras is called a diakonos. Here's a gentleman who rendered service to the nature of the Lord's church in various locations. Later in Colossians 4 7, Tychicus is called a diakonos. One by one, we notice these names just reminding us that these were faithful servants of the Lord serving in a particular congregation and perhaps even rendering service to extended churches. Third example, the Apostle Paul is called a diakonos in 2 Corinthians 11. He called himself a servant to the God of heaven. Maybe finally you'll notice, interestingly enough, even Jesus is called a diakonos to the uncircumcision. There in that text in Romans 15, 8. It's easy for us to appreciate, we're gaining the view then, that this word diakonos can be used in a way to describe a person who is a generally a servant to God. In that sense, every one of us should have then a desire to be a diakonos. Let me show you one interesting appreciation of that. In 2 Corinthians eleven fifteen, we do find it used in a way descriptive of a Christian, like myself or like you. But you'll notice that one interesting conclusion of that, and I want to make sure we understand the point I'm making here. I would not want anyone to leave under a wrong impression. There is even a woman in Romans 16.1 called a diakonos. Here was a lady who was a servant to God, just like all of you and I could well be today. 
you and I would appreciate then that here, just as much as the word can be used in a generally impressive way, referring to a Christian, a saint, a person in service and faithful service to God, diakonos is an appropriate word describing that. But might we notice that all stands in distinction to what's now about to come. The New Testament uses the word diakonos in another way as well. Not just with a reference to a general servant to God, but as one that is, shall we say, a specific meaning to that word. Or maybe we should say an official meaning to that word. And I use that word official in relation to an office. Is there an office of a deacon? A particular presentation in which there is a recognized placement in a congregation and one or more individuals might occupy this office of a deacon. The answer is yes. And the New Testament uses this word, again, in a very different, with a much more powerful thrust in the following way. There are qualifications for this one in the sense that it has to be just more than a Christian. The person who occupies that office of a deacon, there are certain things that person has to meet, certain attributes which he must set forth and exhibit in his life. Thus, I hope we can now see diakonos in terms of an office is a general presentation about this official office. And it stands to note that that's different from the general diakonos that any of us might be. At the bottom of that slide then, let's begin to look at that office of a deacon. What about those individuals that occupy that office? The first occurrence that you and I find in the New Testament appears to be in the sixth chapter of the book of Acts. Let me encourage you to turn to that location as we note some of the features of what's presented on that occasion. Acts chapter number 6, beginning in verse 1. The text isn't terribly lengthy, so let's just read the first few verses of that chapter. And in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews, because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word." We notice on that occasion that these deacons, these individuals that were appointed, were appointed to address a particular need. On that occasion, it happened to be some widows were being neglected in the daily ministration. In recognizing the problem, the apostles said, Appoint some men. Appoint some individuals. That, in fact, can address this problem while we give ourselves to prayer and to the Word. The deacons then, these individuals appointed, and you might notice in verse number 5, seven men were appointed. It is of interest that those seven men, the names they're listed, are names which themselves are Grecian in character. In other words, the apostles made this appreciation. You who are having the problem or claiming that there is, you find you, seven men among you, that you trust and have these qualities, and you have let them handle this business making sure those widows are not neglected. Those seven men again are listed in verse number 5 of Acts chapter 6. As you come to the bottom of that slide, 
maybe that leads us to one final observation on this slide before we go to the next. I suppose that there has been a tendency in one way or another to look upon a deacon as a stepping stone to the eldership. But the New Testament doesn't present it that way. A deacon is a valuable office in and of itself. A man might serve as a deacon for life in the sense that for years he might occupy that appropriately and in a blessed way to that church. It isn't necessary, in other words, for a person to be a deacon before he's an elder. The New Testament never says that. Thus, I hope we don't look upon the role of the deacon as an inferior thing in the sense that it's just a second-rate kind of thing compared to an elder. The New Testament doesn't describe it that way. In fact, from what we're about to see, the deacon is presented in a very blessed way. So much so that why don't we proceed at once to look at that text that Brother Matt read a minute ago. I would ask as we turn to this slide, what about the work and the qualifications of those that serve as deacons. I thought that we would consider them in such a way that we can intertwine the understandings of their work and these qualifications. And so one by one, back to 1 Timothy chapter number 3, I would ask you to notice that verse that we noted earlier, verse number 13. For they that have used the office of a deacon well purchased to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. I'm sure we each can feel the complimentary and commendable character of a deacon in that verse. They that have used the office well. What else do they do? It says they purchase a good degree. Finally, great boldness in the faith. The first comment certainly should be this one. That word wells, it appears in 1 Timothy 3.13, is a word that reminds us very critically about the opening verses, really, of 1 Timothy 3. Now there we were discussing the elder, but we found that in verse 1 that the man that desires the office of an elder desires a good work. And we learned that word desire meant this is something to reach for, to strive for. Same kind of idea appears here. The word well means to attain a good standing. The person, that man that serves as an elder, serves in a way that can be very encouraging and very pleasing to God and can render an amazing service to the church. It is not in any way to be looked upon as a second-class elder. He's not. His work is different than that of the elder. You'll notice that there at the top, it does seem that the concept of aspiration that's in this. The elder, that is, the person that aspires to this, the person that occupies that office of a deacon, he does have a very high standing. Qualification number two. You notice in that text we read back in Acts chapter 6, there were several things those apostles said relative to the selection of those seven. Did you notice in passing what they were? First, look you out men that are honest. And that word honest in that location means to have a good reputation, to be well spoken of. A deacon needs to be a person of dignity and a person of reputation in the sense that he needs to have a life of cleanness before God, a life recognized for the opportunity and wholesomeness that it presents. 
surely that encourages all of us to think about it and all of us supposed to have a good name before God. Proverbs 22.1 still says a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches and loving favor than silver and gold. This good reputation leads to number three. The apostles also said that they're to be full of the Holy Spirit. Those men sought out in Acts chapter 6 were to be full of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? That means it would seem, based on that and what develops in the next two chapters, that those individuals were to be motivated by the things of God. They were to have their primary thought and pursuit the matters that served in the ways that God had delivered They were motivated by what God had said. Surely, in light of all of that, you'll notice that appointment to which they were made. In that case, was to help those widows. A deacon is a servant, specifically appointed to that office such that he could be a specific help to those who are in need in one way or another, rendering a service to the things of God, a service to the church. I ask you to consider along that line, the nature of what it means to be motivated by the Word of God. Isn't it still true today that a deacon, and we're blessed here at Pippin, of course, with deacons, but a deacon is motivated by the things of the Word of God. They seek to aid or to help in ways of fulfilling it. They aren't doing what they suppose or their own ideas or their own agenda. They're seeking to be servants to God and thus helpers in light of His Word as they occupy this particular office in the church that we're discussing. A deacon. Furthermore, you'll notice as you come to the next one, they were also said in Acts chapter 6 to be in need of wisdom. Look you out among you men that are honest, full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom. That word wisdom brings us to appreciate this definition. Those who can use knowledge in the right way. Those who furthermore have insight. These men recognize that a certain course of action may lead to certain behaviors, sometimes bad and sometimes good, and so in that wisdom they can choose the right course of action. They can make the right suggestions to their elders. You'll notice in light of those things, I would encourage you to think about the place where that wisdom is found. If these men are to be full of this wisdom, where do they find it? If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not. James 1 verse 5. We're told in Colossians 2 verse 3 that in Christ are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In James 3, verses 13 and following, we have a description of the wisdom that's from above and what sweet things that wisdom brings. We can be thankful for deacons that have these qualities. You'll notice the next one, though, takes us back to 1 Timothy chapter 3. What here does Paul say about these deacons? Verse number 8 says, Likewise must the deacons be grave. You may note the word likewise. He has just finished giving the qualifications and descriptions of an elder, and now he says, in like manner, here are the characteristics according for a deacon. First one, must the deacons be grave? Bottom of that slide, please. The word grave means to be honorable. It means, in essence, to be worthy of respect and to be dignified. 
we noticed that in a way as we discussed at the top the characteristic of honesty. We would anticipate that a deacon, given the service that he renders, should be a man who is recognized as serious with respect to the Word of God, and he seeks in the dignity of that office to carry it out acceptably and to carry it out in a way that pleases God, to be dignified and honored. You'll notice some of these verses. These deacons then could well serve as a good example for the remainder of us. 1 Timothy 4 verse 12 sets before all of us the characteristic that we should keep in mind. Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in purity, in faith, in verity, to be an example. These deacons in the dignity of that office brings us to the next observation, qualification number six. You'll notice at the top, Paul quickly adds to the list like this. Likewise, must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued. That word literally in Greek means to say the thing twice. You and I today often hear the phrase, he speaks with forked tongue. A person who says one thing to one group and a completely different thing to a different group because he ascertains what each group wants to hear. A deacon is not like that. A deacon is convicted of what is wrong and right and will in consistency say that which is in accordance to that which is of God. He's not double-tongued. You'll notice I've asked you to consider Galatians 1 verse 10. For if we seek to please men, we are not the servants of Christ. Isn't that an interesting usage of the word? Those who seek to please men are not the diakonos of Christ. And yet we're discussing diakonos today, aren't we? Next qualification. After double-tongued, we notice not given to much wine. Verse number 8 specifically says it like this. Likewise must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine. Literally, the word means as follows. Not turning the mind to wine. We found last week with regard to the elder that the elder was to have nothing to do with the social alcoholic beverages. And the same is true of the deacon, isn't it? That is not becoming or fitting for the behavior of a deacon. A deacon is to be serious-minded, recognizing the highness of the office as such. He mustn't be careless or irresponsible, and yet that's what alcohol causes. Alcohol causes one to have poor judgment, causes one to act in ways that are foolish and unbecoming. That's not befitting a deacon. So we would anticipate that any man occupying the office of a deacon can't be given to alcohol, not given to much wine. You'll notice that number eight is this one, not greedy of filthy lucre. Closing qualification of verse 8. One more time, we notice that's identical to what was required of an elder. He couldn't be guilty of filthy lucre either. That word literally means greedy or desirous overtly for base gain. Having a desire for ill-gotten gain, that's not becoming of a deacon. You'll notice in light of those things, I would ask you to contemplate for a moment the role of a deacon. Let's face it. Men that are elders and men that are deacons have access to the treasury of the church. And if they have a propensity, a desire to place their hand in it and take what doesn't belong to them personally, they could do it. 
Deacons need the funds of that treasury to help take care of the building. They need it to help take care of the features and matters. And if they can't be trusted, if you wonder or have question about their desire for ill-gotten gain, that man's not qualified to be a deacon. They need to be trustworthy men. Men who recognize that even if God blesses them with much gain physically, the church's money doesn't belong to them personally, just like it doesn't belong to the elder personally. Not greedy for filthy lucre. Next qualification. You might appreciate in all of this a reference to Romans 12, 17. Providing things honest in the sight of all men. We would expect a deacon to be on the up and up, if I might use that phraseology. But notice where that points us in light of this one. Verse number 9 puts it like this in 1 Timothy 3. Holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. These elders are, or these deacons are said to be holding something. What is it? It says it's the mystery of the faith. I find that phrase interesting in the original language. It literally means to be genuinely faithful. Being a deacon is not just something these individuals may be doing just for the office. They're not doing it just to make a name for themselves. They are genuinely faithful men. And they're privileged to serve as a deacon. They're not pretentious. They're not playing a game with the deaconhood. They literally are serious about the role of the deacon and privileged and thankful to God for the opportunity. They hold the faith. And it says in that very passage, as the verse closes with a pure conscience. So you notice they're sincere men. That sincerity leads us to note the next one. Paul goes on to say this in verse number 10, and let these also first be proved. Interesting, isn't it? With regard to the deacon, he says, let these first be proved. The word literally means to be examined and thus satisfying qualifications. In other words, you should be able to see in the light of a man's life these qualifications and these attributes displayed, and only then upon being examined with care should you appoint him to a deacon. Now we learned that that was a similar idea with respect to the eldership, wasn't it? These qualifications aren't given merely as suggestions. They are absolute requirements of heaven, aren't they? These qualifications, notice being proved, 1 Timothy 3 verse 10. Paul wasn't finished, however. There are other things he quickly noted as well relative to these qualifications. Let's begin to notice number 11. At this point in verse number 10 and following, he says, Then let them use the office of a deacon, being found blameless. And so we come to this concept of blamelessness. That one's identical in word to the one that appears very early in the list of qualifications for an elder. Please notice verse number 2 of the same chapter. A bishop then must be blameless. We learned last week as we studied about that, that does not mean sinlessly perfect. Rather, the idea is as follows, not to be laid hold of. A man whose life and whose behavior, whose conduct is above open reproach is a man who you recognize makes his mistakes just like we all do. But there's no single sin, no single consideration of his life to which you can point as a serious and continuing downfall. 
He's blameless. You'll notice in that blamelessness, we appreciate how interesting and also how meaningful that qualification really is. The next one on our list, number 12, is now written like this. Verse number 12. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife. And so now we find another very carefully specified statement, just like the others have been. A deacon must be the husband of one wife. We did notice at the outset of our lesson this morning, all of us are, are deacons in the sense that we generally serve God. But now in terms of that office of a deacon, here's something unique. A man has to be a married man to be a deacon. He can't be appointed to that if he's a bachelor. He can't be appointed to that, again, if he cannot be appreciated as the husband of one wife. Because of that, you'll notice, a woman cannot be this kind of deacon. A female cannot occupy the office of a deacon as we're now describing it. She can't be the husband of one wife. It was the plan of God and His infinite wisdom. The elders had to be men, and so too did the deacons. With regard to that appreciation, that's not all. A man must not only be married. Verse number 12 goes on to say, Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. A deacon has to have children. Not only must he be a married man, he has to have children. I have stated that one as number 13. In the same way we learned last week, the Holy Spirit doesn't specify the number. He's not being tested over His progenity in terms of number. So one or more children could qualify a man, all other things being asserted, to be a deacon. But you'll notice it says, ruling their children in their own houses well. This married man, this man that has children you'll notice that there is one interesting distinction here compared to what we noted concerning the elder. There it was said the elder had to have faithful children. That's conspicuously absent here. And so we notice they must have children, but it is not asserted they must be faithful. Let's be careful, though. We would appreciate that if he is ruling his own household well and he has grown children or children that have reached later teenage years, now they can't be reprobates and guilty of dissolution. But could he have young children that maybe haven't reached the age yet of obeying the gospel of their own accord? Must have children, but it doesn't say that they have reached an age where, for instance, the elder, we learned that faithful children there apparently meant that. For that's the way Paul defined it. We thus appreciate that a man could serve as a deacon, apparently. Being married, of course, having children, but maybe they're young children. But it is important to notice that there must be clear evidence that he's ruling his house well. Qualification number 14. That means he leads his house rightly. He leads his house in a way that's respective of what's fitting and proper from a biblical standard. It's clear from the behavior of his children and his wife that things are well directed in a spiritual way. That's a qualification for a deacon, isn't it? Much like it was in similar form for an elder. At the bottom, I would ask you to notice that as we contemplate this discussion of ruling his house well... 
That's a terminology very similar to the elder. The elder needed to rule his house well. But the highlight was of spiritual leadership, spiritual insight, wisdom, and thrust. That's important to ensure that a man's appointed a deacon who would have these qualities. One last set, though, concludes our study for this morning. These last qualifications touch the other attributes of this deacon's life. Because you'll notice his wife is such that certain things are said about her. Please read with me verse number 11. And so, even so, must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. We've thus learned about the deacon, but now you'll notice the office which he occupies, this gentleman, this man is such that there are certain things that must be true of his wife. There are four of them. First of all, she must be grave. You'll notice that's the same word that we saw earlier with respect to the deacon himself. It has to do with dignity. It has to do with honor. And it has to do with what's respected. That surely would include the way she dresses, the language she uses, it would make use of the various conduct and behavior she sets before others. This deacon is going to, of course, have a great opportunity to serve the church. She will be a tremendous asset to him. She can also be a great harm to his work. She needs to be dignified and grave. Number 16, she must not be a slanderer. We notice these were the same qualifications for the wife of an elder. She too may well become privy to information due to the work of her husband. She must not be a gossiper or a tale-bearer. She can't be one who openly shares what should remain confidential. She must not be of that character. You'll notice that the second to the last one, it also says she must be sober. The wife of the deacon must be sober. Just like we studied in, in regard to the elder, that means that she must herself not be given to wine, but that she too must be an individual of sound judgment, one who gives an exhibition of wisdom. Some of these qualifications, you and I think about them, we appreciate the kind of tenor that they set forth. And maybe to your mind, race is a person who you just have a sense that person is of that way. Her life is an exhibition of this goodness. Number 18 and finally, the text says she must be faithful in all things. She's faithful to her husband. She's faithful to the duties and responsibilities touching her children. She's faithful to the Lord and to the church. She's faithful in all things. These 18 qualifications we have noted, touch that work of a deacon in the sense that only a man with those qualifications, wife too with those qualifications, should be appointed that office. A deacon. What a great work. We can be so thankful for our deacons. Thankful for their faithfulness, for the service they render to the church here at Pippin. Thankful for the opportunities that God has given them to edify and encourage all of us in the ways that they do. As you come to the close of that slide, you think of being about the blessing of the, being a deacon. I hope our young men in the audience will aspire to one day be a deacon. Young man, that means you need to live your life in a way to where you can meet all these qualifications at some future point. 
that means you need to choose your spouse wisely. Marry someone in the Lord who will help you go to heaven and do that in a way, of course, recognizing ultimately you can render a tremendous asset to the church if one day you have the privilege, of course, of serving in, in, in the deaconhood. As we've studied all these things today, let's close our lesson like this. We've learned that the New Testament uses the word deacon in two very clear ways. There's a general way in which every Christian is a deacon, but there's an office of a deacon. And that man that occupies that office has qualifications he must meet. And we've looked at them one by one. And we have looked at 1 Timothy 3 where Paul reminded them of, of, of Timothy himself. As we've studied one and all of them, can't we then say that in God's infinite wisdom, a deacon, as he is appointed to serve a particular work or to carry out a particular need in service in the church, what a tremendous help he can be to so many. I hope today as we've studied these things, we've been encouraged to think about the specificity of God's Word. Today, may I say to all of us, whether you're a deacon in this specific office or not, if your life isn't right with God, if there are things amiss in your life, don't remain in that condition. The blood of Jesus Christ was shed for you and for me. If we can be of assistance to you today in your service to the Master, in your desire first to become a Christian perhaps, you need to believe Jesus to be the Son of God, repent of your sins, confess His name as the only begotten Son of God, and be baptized. If we could help you with that today, what a glorious day it would be for you. If though you need to return to your first love, Revelation 2.5, you need to in fact become again an individual who can proudly in service to God, be faithful in His kingdom. If today we could pray with you and for you, we'd be honored to do it. If you find yourself in need right now of a public response to the gospel call of invitation, we would urge you to come and do so at once. While together we stand and while we sing.